This is Becoming Developers. Welcome to Becoming Developers, a show which will speak to professional software developers and investigate why they work in the industry and what they learned about themselves along the way. I'm your host, Kirk Northrop, and I'm pleased to have with me today Chris Withers, a long-standing Python software developer and contributing to not only multiple software libraries, but the language itself and a Python Software Foundation fellow. Welcome, Chris. Hi. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, thank you. So let's start very simply uh, as to what your first memory of using a computer is. First memory of using a computer. Um, so I think probably one that sticks out was playing on, uh, I guess, what would have been described as an IBM portable at the time, but a, a sort of thing the size of a briefcase, which had a plug on the back and no battery. Yeah. A tiny little kind of like probably seven or eight inch uh, diagonal screen uh, and playing the uh, Sierra Adventure games was the first one. The text adventures with the pictures in, is that right? Yeah. And one, you know, then they eventually moved on to you'd like, you know, you'd move your character around with the um, arrow keys and then you know mice came along and were a thing and you could click to where you wanted your character to go to and uh, with yeah that's all stuff the old school horrible uh smeary screens where you couldn't really see anything that moved moved too oh, quickly uh, these were crts so like it's oh, back okay. in the old sharp days you know it was only i mean it was a monochrome screen that was uh, i remember the first one i had was a monochrome one which was just orange and that was the color so it was very weird playing oh. games I know the things you mean now. Yes, the the massive great. I was thinking of the slightly later sort of um, the ones with the little flip up. I had one which was a very old Zenith data systems one, which was again had some horrible smeary CGA screen, which made everything look horrible. No, the first one I had was legit monochrome, um, legit IBM as well. And then I think we eventually, uh, I think my parents eventually saved up and got an Amstrad PC two eight six. Okay. That was the very first color screened computer that I used. So you did all this stuff and it was kind of, it started off with games. How did you realize that, that computers were programmed? Yeah, so, so there's a, a couple of things. Um, the, the first of which was probably hacking around rather than things like this. Back in the days we had magazines that had bits of code and stuff in them. And we used to play Elite, yeah. um, the, the original version of Elite, which you know managed to store all its planets by basically having a kind of fractal progression that produced the universe. And it was actually just hacking around with the save game format. So it's like, you know, oh, okay. Elite was really tedious to start off with. It's like there was a lot of skill and boredom involved in getting the first things done. So if you could just give yourself a few thousand credits to buy like the, the beginning of this, <laughs> you could save a lot of hassle. Um, the other one, which is uh, so the family that owned that orange screen, IBM Portable is the correct term, with my friends from that family trying to sort of make games in Logo, which is a lot harder than it sounds. Yes, uh, yeah. And so that was the first thing. And I think then we moved on. When when we got the Amstrad, um, I ended up obviously GW Basic was with that and ended up mucking around with that. And then for a while, I had this truly bizarre and insane, when I look back at it, um, thing of I was writing a combination of Basic and Microsoft's Macro Assembler and linking right. the two together. And it's like, okay, there's two extremes I probably wouldn't think about now, now yeah. in my career. Yeah, I mean, it was just, it was weird. And again, I think that, you know, that computer wasn't cheap and my parents had enough faith in me to basically just let me take the case off. And, you know, it was back in the good old days, if you wanted a joystick, you had to put an ISO card in for it. And, you know, yeah. you wanted some sound, well, you had to put a sound card in. It was all like, well, you know, 
But I hope your earthing's good because if you touch the wrong line, it's all gone. <laughs> yeah, I I kind of feel sad. I mean, it, it's one thing that's been kind of remedied by the whole Raspberry Pi movement, but I feel sorry for people who grew up in sort of the late 90s in the 2000s where they didn't have the home micros of 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 the uk and europe particularly fostered this sort of tinkering in certainly me and probably you and many other people as well that you just didn't get until raspberry Pis came back in because all you got in the mid late 90s and mid and 2000s was just beige boxes everywhere well and it's worse so now um i was chatting about this with nicholas about getting kids into programming and he said one of the struggles they have with the seven to ten year olds is that they have grown up without ever really using a keyboard and then they're sort of dawning realization that programming is all about typing endless text into computers because they're used to using ipads and things yeah like everything's that. just a touch surface and i know with my son who's four now it's it's been a conscious choice having had that conversation with Nicholas is that I now, you know, the, the keyboard is a game for him. It's like, well, can you find this letter? Can you find that number? And so he is already comfortable with, you know, finding keys and pressing them to match up with numbers and letters rather than just dragging around on an iPad. He does plenty of that as well. I'm not going to lie. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's a thing that's going to, I mean, as time goes on, it's going to differentiate more and more people. It's like, can you, you know, can you function with a keyboard and text editor and understand the stuff that makes things work? Or are you mm. going to be stuck in like, you know, drag and dropping, dropping bits and pieces around, you know, things like if this, then that are great for getting stuff to work together, but it's not really programming. Yes. Yeah. I, I hadn't really thought about that, to be honest. I, I just kind of, because it's something that never happened to me. Everything, you know, the... Uh, the first computer I had was a Commodore 64, which obviously didn't have, well, it had a, had a joystick port, but you, you had to type things in, otherwise nothing appeared on the screen. Oh. And I, you know, it, it didn't even occur to me that kids these days wouldn't use, wouldn't use keyboards very much because, well, I even use my iPad with a keyboard most of the time. So, you know, to me, it just seems weird. So all this stuff kind of geared you up as being someone who was interested in computers. Yep. When did you realize it was something you'd want to do actually as a job? I guess I never really thought about, and this has been throughout my career, I never really thought about it necessarily as a job. That was what was always interesting. Is a kind of, um, I honestly can't remember what would have pushed me to go and do computer science at university other than I really enjoyed doing it. I mean, it's things like when I was at school, um, they didn't do computer science at my school so I did I remember doing an AS level at uh, the girls school that my mum taught at which did involve some hilarity I was not actually in their lessons still around <laughs> yeah. school for kind of like catching up on things and then you know did sat the AS level and got an A in it without you know really having done a lot and it was just yeah. you know I don't know it just it sort of seemed to flow naturally I don't think it was a kind of a conscious choice to go and write a right I you know software development is the career I have chosen it was like well I like mucking around with computers and I like writing software and that just seems to sort of evolve so I think it was that very difficult I'm, I'm sure there's many other people who were uh, Tara I have no idea what it's like these days but I know again when I did it very much the same as you I sort of breezed through a level computing without even sort of touching the sides really and it's yeah. you know you kind of I don't know, I guess you kind of want a bit more challenge from it to see, you know, it, it kind of evolves quite a long way there from from there to sort of uh, maths, basically, which is, you know, what it what it becomes at university, basically, just applied maths. Well, so that, yeah, so that was what was really interesting for me. Um, I, for entertaining reasons, um, 
did not get offered a place at Cambridge despite applying because um, I believe they were they were expecting sort of you know three A's and my teachers had predicted me A B C yeah without actually telling me right okay <laughs> obviously potentially did not go that well in the interview um, and then uh, I mean of course it goes without saying I then got four A's just to prove a point <laughs> yeah and they were like why don't you take a year out and go to Cambridge and I was like oh, you know as you are when you're arrogant and young. Uh, well, they had their shot. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting, actually, because it turns out that um, it's actually the same family friend who who had the uh, IBM luggable thing, um, they uh, went off and did that computer science degree at Cambridge. And it was super theoretical, which is really yeah, not me. exactly. Um, the courses at Southampton were super practical and, like, actually doing stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, I remember uh, one of my striking memories from university was we had a course where the, I can't remember what it was, it was probably something horrible, kind of buzzwordy, of, uh, you know, Java related now. But the the lecturer certainly proved his point by, I think, about three quarters of the way through the course, he left to go and take up a much more highly paid job somewhere else and near a ski resort because he liked skiing. Right, like, okay. You know, it, he kind of made his point about why you might want to study that technology. <laughs> So how relevant do you feel, because you did computer science with image and multimedia systems, so how, yeah, so how the, relevant has that been? So the suffix was basically some checkboxes as to which modules you did. Uh, there's yeah. nothing dramatic about that. It's just a, it was a computer science course. Um, I mean, it's 20 years ago now, so it's quite difficult to think how relevant it still is now. However, mm. I felt, and I still feel, if I look back at the early part of my career, it was just a really good grounding. It was like, here's here's a kind of, bit of depth on all the major topics you're likely to hit from i don't know learning theories about compilers and relational databases and you know like your relational algebra rather than actually anything useful um but you know yeah. it was still kind of like it was all the background that i think when my career ticked on it was like oh actually yeah no you know i i feel i know what this is rather than just like having to work everything out from first principle yeah i know what you mean i mean you still did some of that theoretical stuff do you feel that theoretical stuff has been useful because i mean for example i did uml i haven't seen a uml diagram since i since i left university i don't think yeah i mean i think so so the two things I'd say that were kind of takeaways for me is like, it's the background stuff, right? It's like, it's the fleshing out all the knowledge. So it's the kind of gaps between the stuff that you actively learn, right? Yeah. Um, and the other thing was more, which I think is probably the most important thing to work in computer science is the learning how to learn, right? Yes. The, yeah. only, the only steady thing in our industry is that everything is always changing. And if you, you know, like you just have to be able to deal with that. If you can't, then it's it's just not a career for you. I don't have any particularly strong feelings about people who, who went to university and didn't go to university. But I do know that there is a strong understanding. If you're not taught programming properly, you tend to you tend to ignore a lot of those very simple building blocks that, that build it up. If you don't follow a good course or something like that, yep. then you end up not learning how for loops work whether methods are public or private and what that all sort of means, how memory is managed and stuff like that. And there's some things which, if you're not taught it in a nice way, which, I mean, there are plenty of, of free courses out there that can help you with that. But if you if you don't learn it in that way, you start losing things somewhere along the way. You kind of you kind of miss bits that other people might have might have got. Yeah, absolutely. And if I think if I wind forward all the way through to now, if I'm looking at CVs or resumes and stuff for people we're interviewing, I, I, I've got to be honest, I don't even look to see whether they've got a degree or not. It's more like, what have they done? 
you know yeah what have they done where's the github repo how you know can i see something that they've actually been proud of and put together yes i think there are many more ways into decent computer science now than there yeah were completely um i yeah. don't think it you know i don't think you have to have come on through to kind of like you know doing a, a very formal computer science degree to make any progress and i mean if i look sort of back to the next stage of my career. So after I left university, I would say probably the defining point for me professionally was the work I did uh, in the probably two or three years after I left university. This is where I bumped into Python, funny enough, but it's more the people I was working with at the time. Uh, I just feel so incredibly fortunate to have ended up where I was. So I fell into Python through Zope. My first ever boss kind of was like, hey, here's this Zope thing. Can you go and have a look at it and kind of play around with it? Yeah. And that was how I got into Python. But it was also at the point where, you know, it's right at the start. Zope had just been open sourced. And, you know, the the people in that community were just figuring out how do you how do you involve a community of, you know, potential customers, but also people who could help me develop software. And I'm still on friendly terms with the guys I know from back then, and they're still all doing their thing. But to call out a few names, people like Trace Seaver, Chris McDonough, Paul Everett's now doing lots of stuff with JetBrains, but those guys, you know, they were kind of like the core of the Zope world. Probably also say Jim Fulton as well. That also goes without saying if you talk about Zope. You know, these people absolutely shaped my career, and I've had the fortunate position of actually being able to tell them that. (laughs) Yeah. You know, now down the line, it's like, thank you very much for kind of making my career what it is today by taking some arrogant little 21-year-old out of university and kind of showing them how not not just software development, but how community software development works. Yeah. So this is how you got into sort of open source software and stuff like that? Yeah, very much so. Like, I didn't... I didn't know what open source was when I started using it, but it was actually, you know, the real learning came from doing and being part of that Zope community. Yeah. And it was just such a, you know, for a 20-something person who's not particularly great with people, it was just such a fantastic experience to have all these, you know, like very experienced software engineers who were actively trying to build a community and, you know, like did their best to work with all the people that they encountered. You know, then I mean, I suppose it keeps on getting better in the sense that a few years into the Zope thing, this was when Zope Corp dragged all of the Python core lot over from Europe to the US. And, you know, then as a result, I ended up working directly with people like Guido and uh, Barry Warsaw and Tim Peters. You know, it's just, yeah, you really couldn't ask for any better sort of professional development if I look back at it now with that sort of objective set of eyes. I consider myself just so lucky to have been in the right place at the right time there. Yeah. Those years, I would say, probably more defining on my career than any other any other thing, especially my degree. Yeah. It's interesting you found that a very friendly and sort of collegiate environment because a lot of people don't find that with open source. There's been a lot of criticism over the years that open source software can be very insular and it doesn't really like new people coming in. It doesn't really like to help people out. It's very hard to get started. I mean, this is it's one of the reasons I haven't done a huge amount of, of open source stuff in the past is that, you know, you put in a little bug release and you get told, well, here's our 90-page essay on how to set up the compiler and how to test this and how to test that. And if yeah. you can't be bothered to do that, then we don't want you. And it's interesting to hear that you have a very different experience of that with with Zope. So, I mean, this was 20 years ago, right? We didn't have yeah. any of that. We were just trying to, everyone involved from all sides was trying to just figure it out. Like, what was the green? Like, I remember starting and like, you know, Kent Beck's book about automated testing just came out. The first mm. one I was like, wow, this seems like a good idea. And so then there was like, 
you know, here's this huge app server that has never had any automated tests thrown anywhere near it because it just wasn't a thing that existed. Yeah. And figuring out how to do that. But I mean, also, I'll, I'll be frank as well. I was definitely the antagonist in some of those communities. Yeah. I was, you know, like extremely arrogant and extremely young. And it's, it's weird looking back at that because I had a really positive experience. But if I look back now at some of my interactions, I suspect they were really quite negative for quite a lot of the people involved. Yeah, oh, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, I, I, I get that. I mean, we all sort of have our problems, but you say that it's, it's good that they were kind of there to, to say, well, you know what, what you're doing is good, and we want to kind of, kind of keep you moving on. Yeah, you know, rather also than... might, some of this might just have been my my kind of belligerence and not noticing how uh, annoyed people were. And yeah, what's an interesting side side part of that is. A lot of the tensions that I became aware of, like years later, um, seemed to resolve themselves fairly by meeting people like face to face. So yeah. I'd say the, the you know the first PyCon I went to, which I think was two thousand nine in Chicago, actually then getting to meet so many of these people that I'd known for like a decade, but actually getting to meet them face to face was like, oh, actually, yeah, you know, like beer, let's have a talk, let's go yeah. have some food, you know. Um, and it's all this social stuff. And I think it's difficult now to think how much the world has changed because the bar is so much higher now for what people just expect from quality. Like, you know, if you're releasing an open source package, it's got to have a decent repo. It's got to have decent docs. It's got to have an automated testing story. It's got to have a good contributor story. And then there's all these things that people just go, well, if it hasn't got that, it's not a very good project. And it's like, yeah. it's it's weird thinking back to when I was first getting involved in stuff. It's like, my God, you wrote some software. Wow, yeah. that's cool. Can I help out? Here's a thing I'd like to do. You know, hit, throw some code at it. And it's like, you didn't have pull requests or anything back then. You know, you might get, I can't remember what the equivalent was. I mean, I, it's interesting. If I look back at Zope, I think that was the, the, you know, I was one of the first seed group of four people outside of digital creations as it was then who had right access to the Zope source repository. Yeah. And I remember thinking like, you know, that was a massive deal at the time. And it's just, it's the world is such a different place now. But it's like, I think one of the other interesting things is I'm aware I come from a very privileged position, both in terms of gender and race and all these things, where I am unlikely to get any of the kind of discriminatory practices that seem to cause a lot of problems for people nowadays. Yeah. I don't get people either belittling me or hitting on me because I'm a woman mm. or whatever assumptions people make based on other stuff that has no bearing on anything whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I see the more the secondary effects of like people complaining about the abuse they've received rather than actually seeing the abuse directly. But I mean, I think that's probably just because I, you know, I'm not the target of it and I'm unlikely to be fed by any of the kind of, here's the content you want to see machines. Yeah. Cause it's, it, it's of no interest to me. So I completely understand because I I often am horrified by what I see happen with other people and happen to other people and the sort of things that people receive because you just kind of sit there thinking, surely that doesn't happen. And as you say, it is, it is sometimes very difficult from a sort of privileged position to see that there. But the community has evolved over the years to kind of uh, to try and mitigate these problems and put in place sort of code of conducts and things like that to try and to try and keep people safe i guess and and try and reduce some of these problems and i know python has been definitely one of the communities that has has really pushed forward with, with that yeah i mean you, you step back to when uh, Gila was still bdfling and it's like he's been quite a 
sort of vociferous and strong advocate of equality and inclusiveness from as long as I've known him. You know, I think it's just yeah. part of his character. And yeah, I mean, it's great to see that kind of stuff. It's uh, I struggle a bit because I'm a bit of a dinosaur. You know, I've been doing this for ages. I'm not fantastically wonderful with people in the first place. And I've got a very dark sense of humour. <laughs> trouble nowadays, you know. And it's, uh, yeah. You see, I guess I also come from a fortunate position. If I've genuinely offended anyone, I'm mortified and will do anything I can to make it right. Yeah. But the flip side of that is like I never set out to offend anyone. I'm probably, you know, provocative humour, certainly. And I like to get a reaction out of people because I think it's a way of engaging people in some sense. Yeah. And yeah. it's, you know, like, I guess it's 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 hard for me because that I get it. That's a lot of that stuff is now just not really acceptable because you put in a situation where there will people who will say the same things I say, but they actually mean them. Mm. And that's very sad to me, but I mean, you know, it is what it is. And so I, I have to have to figure out different ways of communicating with people, which so do, <laughs> do you think that things sometimes go too far? I mean, that there has been criticism in some quarters. I mean, I, there are some sort of very antagonistic people who just believe that any sort of snowflakes kind of thing. But also there has been sort of quite just criticism that sometimes things are a little bit over the top and maybe maybe everybody needs to be a little bit understanding of each other as well as minorities, if that if that's a way of putting it. If you think back to things like Donglegate, you know, um, yeah. I remember, you know, it was sad for me that the first time I saw anything to do with the Python community on the BBC News website was that. Yes, yeah. You know, and I, I mean, I actually, I think I tried to contact the reporter and going, look, you know, this is what you're seeing. Do you, are you interested in seeing what the rest of the community is like? You know, and, and, yeah. you know how, how unusual this is. And there wasn't much interest there because, of course, you know, a nice story like that doesn't really sell much. But also, I mean, I think the thing itself was pretty ridiculous. The fact that, like, three people lost their jobs over that was, like, yeah. I didn't see any deliberate acts there of people actively looking to cause offence. And, you know, I think that's that's such a difficult thing. And that's why I think, from my perspective, we're in a place where we want to try and grow our communities, right? And by grow, I mean, like, yeah. know, make people feel welcome and give people the chance they deserve. Yes, completely. And that, that requires the the level of care and attention that some people now feel is over the top. Yeah. You know, like I said, for me, it's 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 a, it's a difficult one because my, I am naturally someone who's going to fall foul of the, you know, the lighter end of code of conducts and stuff. And, mm. you know, it's things like I remember at PyCon UK, it's like I have always used guys as a as a kind of genderless term. Yes, yeah. And that's something that I, I have to work on changing, you know. It's, yeah. It's, yeah. it's not important, you know, like it's not important enough for me that I'm going to try and stick by the go, well, you know, guys, it's a genderless term for me, so you need to deal with it. It's like it's just it's more of interest to me to make other people feel comfortable and welcome and, you know, in a place where they can go and be themselves. Yeah. With the guys thing, I think it's um, very similar to how I feel about it, which is that I I hadn't ever really considered it. I hadn't really considered that I was saying it and people might see it the wrong way. I've always just, it's just been what I've said because of, you know, wherever I picked it up from, I don't know. And, and, yeah, it, it kind of mortifies me that people might think I'm being uh, offensive or I, I'm gendering something which shouldn't be. But it, I guess it, it brings things forward that you wouldn't necessarily otherwise think of, which is a, which is a good thing if it doesn't offend people. But yeah, it's it's. I think I've seen enough from what people have had to put up with that 
even though these you know these changes can feel awkward for me and I feel like it limits some of the fun and games I would like to have, that's a sacrifice worth making for other people yeah. to feel included and welcome. It's when you step back and you see, you know, if you see someone being able to come out of their shell and feel welcome and open up and learn and enjoy themselves and then end up contributing huge amounts back, that's worth it, right? You know, that's, that's the upside. <laughs> so you mentioned about being proud of things. What was the first sort of completed project you did that you were proud of? Projects are never completed. So, right, yeah. <laughs> um, no, I think that the one that stuck out for me was probably the first open source project that I was involved in that sort of went went well, which was this little piece of blogging software called Squishdot. That was the first project that I was kind of like a maintainer of. You know, I, the guy who originally wrote it, you know, ran out of energy. Mm. And I was, you know, I was at that time had loads of energy and was really excited about this thing. And, you know, this ability to create stuff was just, you know, like, wow, I can really actually put stuff out there and people can be involved in it and try it out. Yeah. It's great. You know, I got to roll in, roll out features and make mistakes and try things and, you know, proud. Yeah, that was a fantastic experience for me. I remember at one stage, I think it was both of the two Linux desktop GUIs news sites were running this piece of software. And loads of other places were as well. I mean, like it was, it was weird. You'd find out that people were using this thing. And you're like, years later, I found people using it as a database, and I'm like, <laughs> I, 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 okay. <laughs> people will always find their own weird uses for software, in my experience. And that, for me, is when you know you've really, you know, that's the stuff I'm proud of. Is like when I find someone's using a piece of software I've written in a way I hadn't expected, but it's given them loads of value. That for me is like, wow, okay, that's cool. You know, I got that one right. <laughs> so yeah that would have, that would be a, a that's definitely the that whole world was the you know first first project that i was proud of stuff so you're you're a fellow of the python software foundation indeed this is this is you're nominated for this for your efforts and your impact on python i presume this is because of zope uh no not at all actually. oh okay many years later i think my understanding, because obviously part of this process is private and someone's involved in some of it, is you're kind of proposed by someone and someone seconds and then there's a bit of a discussion and then it's approved. This is how it used to work. Mm. I, I believe the first time this happened, it was actually a no. <laughs> like, right, okay. This guy is not, you know, not a great person, I think was what it boiled down to. Right, okay. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's fair comments, you know, they, they, they weren't inaccurate. Uh, but then the round two came about um, actually as a result of the Python job board. Uh, right, okay. I ran for uh, probably two to four years. Oh, okay. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, yeah. And this is, you know, I, uh, for a lot of it, I was basically, I was the person doing it. And it was a lot, of, essentially a lot of it was just interacting with an incredible number of recruiters and trying mm. to get sanity out of them and filter out the jobs that really weren't Python related. Yeah. Try and help people who might, you know, might need, might have needed it to just get their job advert in the shape that would make sense for what we're looking for and all these kind of good things. So, mm. Do you think being a Python fellow has helped you out? Do people outside of the Python community know, care? Has it has it had an impact? Do people do people recognize it or I mean I don't think so, if I'm honest. And okay. I think as time goes on, that's going to be, you know, there's there's a lot more ways to become a uh, Python Software Foundation member nowadays. And I think in terms of any kudos you might get when interviewing for jobs and stuff, it's all going to, you know, the waters are muddied enough that it, it probably doesn't 
matter as much it i know what it means to me you know and I, mm. it was it was quite special for me to get recognition from a bunch of people that i really respect to say actually look we think what you've done is quite valuable yeah um you know probably getting commits into c python core has been more interesting for me okay in the sense that you know if, if you're if you're having a conversation with a potential employer or a customer and you're like well if there's bugs that need fixing in C Python itself, I can actually help with that. You know, yeah. You know, probably also, and this was as a corollary of the job board stuff, but which I use mainly just to wind people up nowadays is um, because I was interacting with so many people on behalf of uh, the sort of, you know, Python community. Yeah. I sort of asked around because I was like, look, actually me just sending, you know, email from my company email address, I could certainly appreciate a lot of recruiters going, who are you and why are you emailing me? Yeah. Um, so I said, look, is there anywhere I can get an at python.org address just for this kind of stuff? But they were like, yeah, sure. What name do you want? And I was like, uh, I mean, if Chris is there, I'll take it. And it <laughs> out Chris at python.org was available at that point. So I was like, sure, you know. And that's been a lot of fun because, you know, um, particularly now when I'm teaching Python to interns and grads and stuff, and they're like, well, what's your... Yes, almost like what's your credentials in terms of being able to do Python things? I'm well, you know, if you want to email me, you can just email Chris at python.org. Yeah. It tends to be pretty memorable, which is lovely. Um, I have a lot yes. of fun with that. But So so where do you go from here? What what are your sort of aspirations for the future? Um so yeah, I mean as as many people who have got small children will probably appreciate, um here at the moment is just always fighting for time there is never enough time in the day to get the stuff done you know yeah i'm very fortunate to have a job that i absolutely love and i'm always fighting to try and you know find more time and energy to work on some of the stuff there but then away from that you know i've also got my family to um, look after and be with and you know i've got children to bring up and that kind of thing yeah and then after that it's like well there's all the open source stuff that i'd love to do um you know, I've had to over the years take the sort of sometimes painful decision to ditch projects like all the Python Excel stuff. Um, that was really interesting for a while, but it's an area where unless you can devote sufficient time to it, you end up being more of a hindrance than a help. Yeah. And you know, kind of like actively saying, "Look, I, you know, I'm kind of done with this because I, you know, I'm not doing a very good job." It's sad when you then don't see anyone else picking up the projects that you had. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, in terms of like, so the, the positive stuff I'd love to get into, I have a quite an interest in dependency injection at the moment. Uh, so okay. The, the whole process whereby it's kind of like rather than very tightly linking together a bunch of functions and that kind of stuff and writing code that way, you're kind of like going, okay, here's here's some functions that do what I need. And they specify what what is required for them to work. And then the framework in between fits that all together and says, okay, look, I've got you a database session and I've got you an incoming web request and I'll just call your function with the stuff that you've asked for. Um, and doing that in a very generic way is, is actually fiendishly difficult. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's, a, there's an excellent book which has just come out by Harry Percival and Bob Gregory, uh, Architecture P Patterns with Python, which covers a lot of this sort of Yep. dependency injection and event driven stuff and things like that i've i've been reading because I've, I've been doing very similar stuff at work as well and that's that's quite interesting that's uh, i actually changed some of our stuff around to fit more their sort of more generic model of sort of dependency injection and stuff like that because it 
seemed to make more sense when they wrote it down rather than what I was trying to do. Yeah, I mean, so I've always been, well, I say always, for, since I started working with Python, which is all my professional career, I've been fascinated in automated testing of things. Yeah. And the dependency injection model means you tend to um, abstract your project and code away in such a way that it's em eminently more testable. You know, you just have these little chunks that you can fit together and test as opposed to like, well, you know, here's 3,000 lines of code in one function. Uh, good luck. Yeah. You know, um, but so uh, currently, and this is a to, your, to your question about things for the future. So there's a really interesting probably, well, I guess, API building framework for the web called Fast API uh, by a guy called Sebastian Ramirez. Okay. And it's a project that I have tried to engage with uh, probably over a year or two now because it really is fantastic. It's kind of builds on top of uh, Tom Christie of DRF fame's Starlet base server. So he's, he's, again, built a fantastic piece of software in the form of Starlet, which is like, the, you know, it's a little ASCII web server that does all the things you want of it and does mm. it really well, but no more. And then Fast API layers are kind of like an API building layer on top of that. Um, Fast API is all very much dependency injection driven. And I tried really hard to get into Fast API and like it to the point of, I think I gave a talk at, uh, at PyCon UK as a sort of like, here's how you use Fast API. But eventually realized that the, uh, it had a fundamental problem for me and that the dependency injection in Fast API is very tightly coupled. Okay. So you kind of, you, ha you define your dependencies, but you also define how they're resolved. Right, okay. And that for me ended up being just too much of a constraint. So I had already had knocking around a dependency injection library called Mush, uh, which I wrote originally in about 2013. 2014 mm -hmm. um, as a way of preventing a framework ever growing a massive base class with a huge number of plug-in-y method -y type things having suffered through one of those i was like okay, how can i write a library that actually physically prevents you from ending up in that mess yeah that library kind of evolved to a point where it's, do it's doing exactly what it needed to then uh, type annotations came along in python 3 i was like oh hang on this is really interesting you know i can now have part of the actual language tell me what a thing is and you know then you have much more information about de doing dependency injection when the type annotations they're telling you well this thing called session is actually a database session and so this class and this is what you need to provide so i kind of cycled back around when i when i got to the point with fast api i realized it's like look this is i love this but it's just not quite where i where i want it to be it's like hang on i've also got this library knocking around which is like how you do uh, dependency injection so I spent uh, a couple of months just making some quite big changes to that. So a big one, of course, for example, dropping Python 2 support. Yeah. Um, which let me take much more advantage of the annotations and you know, try and have a think about how this could be used in a more generic fashion. And then, of course, with the first project for that is let's see if I can build a, a, something that smells a lot like Fast API, but it has the, the properties that I'm looking for in a framework. Yeah. And it might be one of those things where, you know, no one ever uses it apart from me or it never even gets finished. Um, that's fine. It's all, you know, that, this is the non-work stuff for me. So it's about having fun and exploring it. So, yeah, I mean, like that's that kind of stuff. I would love to I would love to make some progress on that and get it to a point where other people are actually able to use it or let alone interested in using it. What What's your best bit of advice to other developers, people who are who are coming up or are perhaps a bit sort of disenfranchised with with what they're doing? So people starting writing software earlier on in their careers, I think um, 
it's difficult for me because the world has just changed so much since I was in this mm. position. But um, I feel a bit sorry for people who are now getting into writing software because they see it as a good way to make money. Yeah. I say sorry because, you know, it's a viable way to go nowadays, but you won't have the love for it that people who have done it because they got into it and then found out that you could make money out of it. I would say if people want to have a fantastic career in software engineering, like any other career, I think it has to be one that you actually love doing. And then you'll have the energy to do all the extra bits and pieces and you won't feel like, oh my, you know, I have to go and learn how to do this new thing because otherwise I won't be able to do my job. It'll be like, hang on, there's this new thing. Or oh, let me go and play with that and see what happens if I, you know, what happens if I poke this bit? Oh, oh I didn't mean to do that. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'd say advice for people coming through is just find the part of software engineering that you really love doing, the stuff that you would do even if you weren't being paid. And that's probably the thing to draw yourself to. You may not have that choice. You know, we all have bills to pay and responsibilities. But where you do, that's probably where I'd, I'd sort of draw your attention to. Yeah, I I, com- I completely agree. I spent five years after my degree, six years after my degree, uh, not working in, in software engineering because I'd kind of been put off parts of it because of there was, there was a very strong suggestion from my university that you should go into consulting and stuff like that, go and work for like IBM or Accenture or one of those big companies and um, go around the world programming stupid systems for big companies who want, you know, basically just a database rehashed for the 95th time. And uh, that kind of sapped my interest and my morale in, in writing software. And it was only after I spent time writing stuff for friends and things like that, writing little projects and and particularly from finding Python as well and not having to to worry about, you know, massive great big Java programs with, you know, huge amounts of boilerplate yep. code in them everywhere. That I realised that actually, yes, I really enjoyed programming and it was something that I could probably do as a job. Yeah, very much so. Uh, thank you very much, Chris. It's been a pleasure. Uh, that's all from this episode of Becoming Developers. We hope you enjoyed it and we'd appreciate you rating us in your podcast app if you did. If you'd like to get in touch or become the subject of a future episode, please get in touch with us via Twitter at uh, becomingdevs, that's becoming D-E-V-S, or at anchor.fm slash becoming dash developers. Thanks again to Chris Withers for joining us, and we'll see you again soon.